Hello, my name is Raj Mehta. Welcome to Richard Liebman Discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? Uh, I'm fine, thanks, Raj. I'm based in London, under the flight path leading into um, Heathrow Airport. So if there's a little bit of a rumble in the background, you'll know it's um, some of your loved ones arriving in England. Well, I hope you have a safe time while you're there, Richard. <laughs> none, none of them have dropped on me yet. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Uh, I think this is, will be an informative topic, um, and I'll let you take the lead on this one. Yeah, well, I've been um, thinking a lot recently about the place of patients in generating evidence. I say recently, in fact, I've been thinking about it for the last 15 years, really. Um, but it's become um, more clearly focused because uh, I've been talking to Ian Chalmers a lot about this. He was a great pioneer in involving patients. And yet the history of patient involvement in research um, is, as far as I can tell, not very well recorded. So I thought we might just have a stab at chatting about it. And um, if uh, any of any listeners have any further ideas, we'd love to have feedback from them. This is going to be fun. So I'm actually not that familiar with the history of uh, patient informing the process of generating evidence or in clinical research. So maybe that would be a good place for us to start. Um, if you could provide us with some context and background. Yeah, well, as usual, uh, my medical history is very broad brush, and um, I'll be talking um, from the earliest times onwards, but concentrating on uh, the fairly recent present. So if we begin right at the beginning, it seems that medicine arose from uh, a development from uh, <clears throat> basic uh, healers, uh, shamans, uh, people who depended upon a lot of mystique and religious ceremony. And that was then replaced by a theoretical basis for medical practice, which was also completely illusory. Uh, and this carried on for millennia. Um, and patients were supposed to be the recipients of teaching or procedures conducted by these people and very often their diseases were blamed on them them personally or malign forces within the universe and so scientific medicine really began when a different approach was taken uh, to what actually worked and one of the earliest examples of this was the use of smallpox, the virus, to prevent smallpox, the disease, um, in a seemingly counterintuitive way and in a way that went against all teachings of divine intervention um, and caused a great stir in Boston, Massachusetts at the beginning of the 18th century. So around about 1710, you get Cotton Mather, the preacher in Boston, fulminating against the use of um, this agent, God's uh, revenge on the human race in some way to prevent God's 
further revenge in killing a third of children. And even Cotton Mather could see that this was um, not going to be a very popular argument. So he changed that. And then you've got uh, vaccination and other things. So these were responses basically by the human race to massive challenges of mortality. And um, similarly with the plagues, um, a third of the population could be killed by epidemics. So it seemed reasonable to go against God's will and to try and prevent these wretched things. Uh, but the patient was there just to take orders from um, those who knew better. Um, but the patient was very willing to do this by and large because they were saving their own lives and those of their children. And this continued really to be the model right up to the 20th century that patients were actually not very much involved in deciding what was important. Um, doctors could see what was important, what was killing most people. And uh, so they sought means to prevent that. And these means were pr pr primarily uh, vaccination and um, sanitation. Um, which saved more lives than anything else and still do. Um, but then we come to the, the beginning of the 20th century where um, it becomes clear that there are infectious agents which um, cause most disease in those days and um, which were the diseases that were most important to address and how were we going to do that. Um, and um, doctors, again, mostly led the way, but patients began to have a say. Uh, and looking at the history, the most interesting bit that I've found so far, and I haven't done a lot of research on this uh, yet, is the formation of a People's League for Health in Britain immediately at the end of the First World War. So in 1918, um, you get a particular woman who is trying to get together people to decide on what the priorities for health in the nation, in this case, the British nation, should be. Now, there are probably similar instances in, in America and probably earlier ones, too, which I'd love to hear about. Um, but this lady um, had the name of Olga Nethersole and um, the notoriety of having been an actress. And so she was absolute box office poison to the medical establishment of her time, uh, who were all writing to each other, say, have nothing to do with this woman. Or in fact, one of them said, tell her to go to hell. And, um, but she didn't, she persisted. And in those days, society women in London circles could wield quite a lot of influence. And she actually got this league going. And the wonderful thing about it was that although she was rich and, um, and to some extent famous and moved in the circles of the rich, her main um, concern was for the health of the female poor. And a hundred years later, the female poor are still probably the most underrepresented um, group in um, public health um, globally and in clinical trials specifically. And these were the pregnant. 
um, poor she was particularly interested in and she was interested that they tended to get a high mortality from um, preeclampsia and from anemia and so she proposed back then um, that there should be large interventional trials uh, of improved diet for women to prevent these conditions and these succeeded and she proved that a public campaign for, pub for medical research could succeed Anyway, I'll break off there and then we'll talk about uh, more recent developments because I've already gone on a long time. Oh, no, that's a wonderful review, Richard. I feel like we could just have a podcast on e Richard Lehman discusses medical history and I, I would be there signed up to chat with you the whole time. Um, I I think this is quite helpful in context because, you know, when we think about the role that patients play and there's like a multitude of ways of you can think about this. One is, do they play a role in helping set priorities about what we should do for research studies? Um, do they have a role in helping us determine, you know, how we value health outcomes, what the utility of various outcomes are? Um, do they have a role discussing individual health? Should we be more involved in having them engaged in population level health, especially those individuals, as you mentioned, that are vulnerable, underserved, and otherwise not caught and not often they're prioritized and then should they have a role in helping us determine what we consider meaningful outcomes so there's a lot there in the modern context but you can understand from a historical perspective why that that same need wasn't there because if you're just worried about ross mortality from the plague or smallpox you know there's not necessarily a lot of patient preferences it can be assumed it's a line we don't want to die we going to save lives so you know a doctor-centric approach to generating evidence or prioritizing delivery of care can work. And then in the 20th century, as care becomes more nuanced and we have better understanding about gaps in care, suddenly the benefit of advocacy, of patient advocacy, speaking up for what their needs are and where they're not being met uh, becomes much more prevalent and important. Yeah, I, that, that is exactly the point I was trying to um, to make that um, so let's let's really fast forward uh, to uh, the the 21st century. Um, I think we can um, probably a little before that uh, if we're going to talk about patient reported outcomes. Um, <clears throat> but if if we just continue with a broad brush um, view of things, I would say that um, the post-war uh, medical world has been transformed, of course, by antibiotics. So the great um, uh, threats of infected disease have largely disappeared, um, although, of course, they keep coming back now as viral threats or as um, highly resistant bacteria. Um, so we are now in the age of chronic disease and risk states, um, degenerative disease, precursor conditions, much, much more um, vague and fraught with difficulties in communication, but also massive commercial prop, um, uh, um, opportunities. Because if you don't know you're going to get something and you take a drug for many, many years to prevent it, you're never going to know whether that drug stopped you getting it or you just didn't get it anyway. 
and um, it also gives the um, the possibility for both academe and pharma to uh, generate new diagnoses, as we've talked about before, and um, to identify drugs which uh, look great on paper, uh, but actually uh, have to wander around um, in search of an indication for which they actually do work. And we can all think of these. Um, so, um, you know, the, 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 the situation uh, in the last, let's say, 70 years has changed pretty dramatically and patients now um, need to be much more involved and to be, to some extent, uh, more critical about what they accept as medical progress. And we've certainly seen this happen um, in good ways and in bad ways because people who don't believe in mainstream medicine often believe in non-mainstream medicine, which it can be even more exploitative uh, and illusory. So um, let's just see where the antidote for this process lies. So do you want me to talk about patient reported outcomes? Yeah, I think that will prioritization of research. We'll do one after the other, shall we? That sounds great, Richard. Take the lead. Okay, so um, gradually, uh, from about the time of the Second World War onwards, it became clear that um, uh, clinical trials needed to have outcome measures that would not necessarily be objective. Um, uh, in fact, it had become obvious long before that um, that you could achieve massive results from placebo interventions. And that raised the difficulty of what to go by um, when setting outcome measures for trials. And the, um, the abiding desire on the part of scientists was always to have a measurable um, outcome that did not depend on patient reporting. Um, uh, yeah, something that you could actually show on a bit of paper, a reduction in a number, uh, of a recorded metabolite or a recorded ECG change or whatever it might be, um, or an anatomically demonstrable change. And we've all been lured by this. Um, and as uh, diagnostic modalities have changed, I, I am as guilty as the rest of saying, oh, you know, look at all those changes on the MRI, let's do something about those, you know. And so you would have uh, an MRI change, which would then um, be, be a signal of success while the patient remained equally symptomatic and noticed no difference. Um, so, um, there became um, a movement uh, um, for patient-reported outcomes, which was quite chaotic to start with because the outcomes were all chosen by doctors still. And so certain patient, uh, outcomes that patients reported were thought of as important and others not so because they, they were more difficult to put onto, again, a quantitative kind of linear scale. Um, and the idea that patients themselves 
should generate the the outcomes most important to them um, was was a long time arriving. In fact, it hadn't arrived even by 2000 for uh, in in many cases, and it's still having a struggle to uh, to make itself felt. So, patient reported outcomes are an enormous field of endeavour in themselves, um, and that's perhaps as far as I'll go in talking about them. Um, I'll just mention. Um, at the end of, of this section that um, long COVID probably represents the most dramatic um, improvement in the um, self-generation of patient reported outcomes because patients themselves immediately, once it became clear that there was a form of disease following COVID, um, that lasted for months and didn't get better. They decided they would, um, amongst themselves, compile lists and prevalence um, statistics for more than 200 symptoms which could persist uh, after SARS-CoV-2 infection. So um, this this is really something that the world of research is only just coming to terms with. But similarly, in many other conditions, um, patients will report different priorities of outcomes from the ones that necessarily that usually apply. And in rheumatology, the classic thing is that fatigue is actually one of the symptoms that patients find most distressing, whereas it's much easier to measure um, joint um, x-ray or MRI changes and um, changes in inflammatory markers. An improvement in fatigue would actually outweigh that for most patients. Yeah, so uh, let me break off there again and um, get some comments back. Yeah, I think that's a great summary and I have to largely agree with a lot of the comments you made. I want to offer a counterpoint, uh, perhaps in defense of researchers as Titian, which is, you know, when we're putting so much time and effort into research, I can understand the desire to have outcome measures which are objective in the sense that there's some consistency and reliability in that measurement, uh, such that when we're doing various interventions, we can reliably see changes in those outcomes and actually measure reality, whether there's a difference or not. And there's sometimes a fear that uh, more subjective outcomes that rely on on patient uh, perspectives um, may lack uh, reliability, is in different patients may interpret things in different ways, or it may not be consistent over time. And when you have more nebulous outcome measures without clear, distinct borders, clear standardizations, um, the fear is that then like you either need to have longer trials or that it's difficult to show a difference even if there may be a benefit. Um, I, I do think though a lot of the failures to have more patient incorporation is m largely because we haven't incentivized and structured to meet their needs. But I, I think there is a balance there. And we have to be careful that when we do patient reported outcomes, we're still trying to do so with the highest rigors of methods. Uh, otherwise, a lot of those early fears uh, I think may be present. Yes, um, I think this gets us into a very complex field, really. Um, 
which I don't propose to try and explore now or at any point, in fact, because um, I think different outcome measures apply to different patients and um, uh, there the, the needs to be an increase in the sophistication of medical trials um, to accommodate that, to accommodate personal outcomes and this can possibly be built into future trial design by the use of um, a very critical artificial intelligence um, and the people and I just have to hope that the people uh, who design AI for more complex platform designs will actually take into account the, the the varying priorities of patients and be able to work out statistical methods to allow for them because I personally could not possibly <laughs> attempt to follow the logic of their thinking and they might not even be able to follow the logic of their machines the way things are going so um we 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 are entering a new territory. It's um, it's it's difficult ter territory. I have a I have a lot of skepticism for AI, and then you know we have this balance between wanting to promote more pragmatic, um, straightforward research, which is cheaper to do, and then research which has more patient-oriented outcomes, where it's larger, incorporating more things into measure, and that's longer and harder to do. So there's lots of trade-offs and lots of complexities uh, to consider here for all the folks I, generating I think this so. lovely data. Um, yeah, um, I just don't know how one starts to teach clinical thinking in in that in that uh, sort of environment, um, but you're going to have to think about it at some point. So you know, yes, you'll have your work cut out. Um, so let's go back to that idea that um, that big simple trials are so beautiful and can be so effective as we saw with COVID that they are still going to be our favorites. Um, you know, they're, gold, they're the golden retriever among the, the dog breeds of research, really. Everybody loves them and pats them on the head. Um, but um, let's move from that area, which we've really only skimmed the surface of, um, to where, what we were talking about earlier, which is patients themselves deciding on the important questions yes. um, that need to be answered. And, and this can be done on all sorts of levels and by all sorts of means of democracy. And classically, you know, you have a, a, a research funding body um, in the public domain where which decides the priorities for funding research and then leaves the researchers to devise the methods um and you've got the um the national the nih and we've got the nihr uh which is virtually the same thing uh, and they have limited amounts of public funds yours are, um, are far less limited than ours then you have the whole of academe and industry working together to try and satisfy what they believe are um, the saleable aspects of um, medicine, um, which will answer patient needs. And let's not diss them because they come up with great stuff. 
but as we've seen with um, the uh, Parkinson's, uh, sorry, the um, not the Parkinson's drug, the Alzheimer's drugs recently, um, they massage their results uh, in ways that will promote sales endlessly and that will also promote uh, diagnostic testing endlessly uh, for a condition that probably cannot be um, altered in its natural history to any useful degree. Um, and that's that's the great danger that we're moving towards unaffordable health through that, that kind of model. So where do the patients come in? Well, of course, the patients with Alzheimer's in the States have vigorously campaigned to have these, these um, trials and these drugs made available, uh, which shows how um, hope can triumph over reality very easily. Um, that's the negative side. But there is a much more positive side, which is where patients actually do collaborate together to set research priorities. And that's something I discovered 12 years ago. Um, while I was in the States, I, I learned um, that there was an increasing movement within um, the British system to promote this. And it was called after James Lind yet again, very confusing. Um, it's called the James Lind Alliance. And we've already come across the James Lind Library, which tells us about the evidence, uh, how evidence-based medicine grew up. But this is how evidence-based medicine should prioritize its conditions. And that's by bringing together patients and their clinicians. Because patients on their own perhaps have a, a two individual view of where priorities lie for them as people uh, or for their loved ones. Patients in aggregate, yes, they, they, they can um, provide a wider range as we saw with the COVID stuff. Um, but that needs to be informed by discussion with the clinicians about how research can be done and what, what is already known and what is not already known. And this is why it was called an alliance and these, uh, the, the critical process here is called um, the priority setting partnership. Uh, a mediated discussion between patients with the condition uh, and those clinicians who look directly after it. So the academics are largely excluded as far as it's possible to, for them to be because they will have theoretical priorities, whereas here we want practical priorities. And about a hundred of these PSPs have now been conducted and they do generate lists of 10 priorities out of huge lists, sometimes of hundreds of different suggestions for research. Um, uh, and uh, I'm glad to say that uh, I'd learned of this model um, while I was working on an agenda for the USP Corey Patient-Centered Outcomes uh, research institute um, and I as soon as I got back to England I, I contacted the, the the James Lind Alliance and said you've got to talk to P. Corey because this is the way to set priorities and P. Corey came over and learnt and they went over to the states um, and um, so I, I was a catalyst for something good although I didn't actually do any of the work myself. So that's um, that, that, that's quite enough about that and about me. Um, observations, please, uh, Raj.
Yeah, I think that captures very well the hopes and the perils of of patient involvement with priority setting of research. Certainly, there are many stakeholders for research, and it's you know limited resources in terms of funding availability and what to choose, what to do, and. We, of course, need patient involvement in determining what matters and what values. If we just had physicians, academics uh, choosing it, the incentives become sometimes disaligned with what the actual needs of patients are. But the balance of that challenge is that if you rely just solely on patients without balancing or tempering or weighing their needs against the reality of what we can practically do or what basic science perhaps is ready to provide, we can sometimes also waste resources and hopes for things which we know need solutions, but which aren't practically options. You know, um, I like your example sometimes of you know diseases like Alzheimer's, where of course we want to put money and research into that because it's such a huge desire for having cures. But if there aren't practically available solutions, it's harder. Knock on wood, maybe some of the newer drugs may have some effects. So we'll see. Um, you know, one of the things. I always wonder about why we do so much research on vitamin D. I feel like we probably wasted more money on vitamin D RCTs than any other nutritional supplement. And I can't help but think part of this is a desire for people to want to know if vitamins and nutritional supplements can make huge differences. And at a certain point, I think you have to be realistic with people and say, hey, look, we've only already done so much research. How much more money can you throw at this? There are other things with clear needs that we can prioritize and and put funding towards. and then, you know, another aspect of this, which is just a, a challenge in general with healthcare access recruitment, is that you can engage patients but uh, or, or individuals who represent patients, but, you know, who are they representing and who are the people who are, you know, being chosen or volunteering for this? And certainly if we are really concerned about people who are vulnerable or who are underserved and don't have access, already we're having difficulty getting them care, already we're having difficulty just recruiting them in trials, are we also missing out on having their voice in this priority setting? And so if you have the well-to-do or those with agendas and advocacy in the priority setting, then we're just perpetuating the ongoing issue of not really prioritizing the needs of those who might have the most. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I've heard very good radical speakers about this. And um, there is a case almost for patients to refuse to take part, to to be part of box ticking exercises, so-called PPI, public and patient involvement, unless they really have a a say in um, the conduct of the trial, unless they really hear about what's happening along the course of the trial and particularly at the end of the trial, and unless they achieve a very good understanding of how it will benefit, them as individuals who are risking their health um, by um, entering a situation of equipoise there and um, who are also um, part of, of larger groups who, who um, should should have a say. But these, I, I mean, I, that's the trouble with podcasts, really. You start to get, uh, you, you talk about so many different things, each of which actually need a whole podcast to themselves, which is good in a way because it means that if we wish, we can carry on indefinitely. And uh, certainly I think we've probably come to the end of um, this particular discussion. Uh, we've probably already tried to cover too much ground. Um, and so I look forward to uh, hearing your main points. Um, as I've done most of the talking, uh, you should do the summarizing, please. Well, Richard, I, I've enjoyed this discussion. I think 
we all agree on the importance and the value of having patients engaged with research and generating evidence, having their voice there both for setting agendas and priorities and also for determining what things we should be studying and what outcomes matter. Um, and I think it's really important to understand this in the historical context that you did in the beginning because a lot of the modern challenges of generating evidence is where this stems from because historically the way healthcare was done was more paternalistic and both terms of patient uh, voice in their own care as well as what kind of research might have been done may not have been present. Um, but uh, as with all things, it's a it's a simple idea, but the reality is much more nuanced and complex. Um, you know, with patient-reported outcomes, there's this this weighted difficulty of wanting to have rigorous, objective outcome measures, but then engaging patients and things that matter to them, and not becoming solely focused within that work for academics and for researchers. And then for priority setting, of course, patient involvement is hugely important but it's very difficult to have those most vulnerable, underserved, have an active voice. It's difficult to balance patients' hopes and expectations against the practical reality of what science can achieve and what's readily available for research. Uh, and then finally, there's all, the ultimate challenge, which is that we want more research, which means sometimes we want simpler and cheaper trials, but having more engagement, having more involvement, having more outcome measures, having more voices inherently adds more complexity, time, and difficulty to getting trials done. So no easy solutions, but a lot of things to wrestle with. Yes, indeed. And um, let's hope that the great new mind from above uh, in the form of AI, both generative and <laughs> analytical, will just completely wipe the slate clean and produce a beautiful new form of medicine, which is what I'm trying to argue in an essay that I've only got 300 words into because <laughs> I don't fully believe it myself. Anyway, um, that that's on that note. Um, thanks for this discussion. It's been fun. And uh, see you next week, perhaps. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.